0: You're listening to the Reformed University Fellowship pod- 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 podcast. podcast at the University of Oklahoma with Pastor Ricky Jones from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, speaking at the North Texas Presbytery meeting of the PCA, hosted by OURUF. As the former chairman of the uh, RUF committee on campus work, this Presbytery, I want to officially uh, thank you, Doug Servin, for the work you've done. As a campus minister here. And for getting UF started in Oklahoma. And we are thankful for uh, the many students that you have blessed. And the, the ministers and the just the great people who come out of your ministry. And uh, I'm not sorry that you're leaving. I'm thankful to have a great church planter coming to Oklahoma City. Uh, the first church plant in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City being the largest city in the country that doesn't have a PCA church. I'm trying to raise some money for you, Doug. How am I doing? So, keep going. Uh, and if you need a, a great ministry to support, I could not highly I recommend one more highly. So, thank you, Doug, for coming to join us in that endeavor. Just to make Doug real more stressed, I decided to change my text and my entire sermon. So, you can ignore everything that's in the bulletin. And uh, if you want to turn with me to Song of Solomon, you can. If you don't, you are welcome to look up to the screen. It's much easier and I would do that if I were you. Uh, while you're doing that, let me uh, pray for us. Please pray with me. our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us tonight from your word. Lord, it is always uh, intimidating and a little bit uh, self-exalting to get to speak uh, to a great court like this. and Father, you know all the wrong motives I have that's irrelevant. I pray that you would, Lord, I beg you to overwhelm anything that would get in the way of you showing us how much you love us tonight. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer at our church, we're starting a new series on the wisdom literature And we're going to start that series off, basically it's going to be Song of Solomon and Proverbs uh, for the rest of the summer. And so I'm starting the series off with Song of Solomon. And as I've studied, uh, getting ready for it up through the spring, uh, the one question that has just kept coming back to me and kept nagging me and kept nagging me was, why is Song of Solomon in the Bible in the first place? What is it doing here? It doesn't fit. And the more I study it, the more I see... A love song. It's a Broadway play at best. It's, it's you know, two people singing to each other of how much they love each other, and that is great. And I, I agree with everything Paul McCartney has to say about love songs. We cannot get enough of them. But why is it in the Bible? What's it doing there? Um, and as I, uh, as I was getting ready for my first sermon on the series, I decided I didn't have time to answer that question, and so I ignored it and moved on. And But then, uh, in the week leading up to it, my wife and I watched an old Columbo episode. And I noticed how Columbo, being the greatest of all television detectives, focused on the one thing that didn't fit. And he badgered it, and he dogged it, and he hounded it until that one thing made sense. And when that made sense, he was able to solve the entire mystery. And so with Columbo as my inspiration, I came back to the text. And I said, why are you here? And then I started thinking about other uh, Old Testament books that also don't belong in the Bible. And I thought about the book of Ruth. A great story. I am 100% pro-Ruth. Okay, I am for Ruth in every way. But it's a story. It's just a story about this girl, this this Moabite, who is brought back into Israel. And, and she's poor. She's so poor, she's got to go out and, and pick up the gleanings. And, and she's noticed by this nobleman, this man of stature. And he loves her and he brings her into his home. And yes, she, she gets to be one of the great grandmothers of King David. And that's wonderful. But it's just a story. And then I go to Esther. And I think, why are you in the Bible? You're just a story. You're just a story about a normal, common, peasant girl who is noticed by the king, who wins a beauty contest at best after spending the night with the king. And a normal girl brought into the castle And made into a queen. And and yes, you save all of Israel. And yes, we are thankful for that. But why are you in the Bible? You're just a love story. And then I come back to the Song of Songs. And I see this simple girl. She's poor. She's made to work in the vineyards. Her brothers mistreat her. She's not beautiful by Israeli standards. Her skin is dark. She's ashamed of her skin. She's ashamed of how she looks. She's ashamed of the fact that she's had to work. And she's noticed by the king. And she's brought into the castle. And I start to see a theme. These are princess stories. They're commoners being married by the king. God loves to tell princess stories. And we love to hear princess stories. There's a reason why we keep... Buying them up. There's a reason why Cinderella and Snow White are always on the bestseller list. There's a reason why Disney chose them. There's a reason why every room in the Disney world has a princess in it. We love princess stories. We love the idea of a commoner who has nothing to offer. Being loved. Being loved so much that a king would humble himself. And sweep down and love her just for her, for nothing that she has to offer, and bring her into his castle. We love that story. That story resonates with us because we want to be loved despite the fact that we have nothing to offer. We want to be loved with a love that doesn't have pressure. I want to be loved. No matter how bad of a father I am today. I want to be loved no matter how bad this sermon is. I want to be loved no matter how bad of a husband I am today. And nobody can do that. No one is able to love me despite all of my dreadful failures. Because in order to love me that way, you would have to be a king who needed nothing. That's the kind of love I need. And that's the kind of love we find in the Song of Solomon. Please read with me chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. I am dark... I'm I'm not going to try to read the girl's parts in a girl's voice. We're just going to go through this. (laughs) I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar. Dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards. So I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. Tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? Why should I wander around like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? If you do not know, O most beautiful women, follow the trail of my flock and graze your young goats by the shepherd's tents. You are as exciting, my darling, darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. How lovely are your cheeks! Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck, enhanced by a string of jewels! We will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. The king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. My lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. You are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed, fragrant cedar branches are the beams of our house, and pleasant smelling firs are the rafters. This is the reading of God's word. The Song of Solomon is a princess story. That's all it is. It's an old fashioned love song. It's a song that illustrates for us the most important story of them all. The story of how God created this world in order to give a gift to His Son. To give a bride to His Son. And how that bride chose not to live in dependent love, but chose to live in independence instead. And how that bride rebelled and ran away. And how that independence led her into despair and brokenness and degradation. And of how the son left the castle. He loved her so much that he left the palace and he sought her out and he freed her, paid her ransom. And he freed her from bondage and he brought her home. I don't think the Song of Solomon is an allegory. I think it's a real song written by Solomon about a real girl that he really liked. I don't plan to spend the next five years taking apart every verse. I got two more weeks on it, and I'm done. I don't think it's an allegory. I think it's a story, and as a story, it teaches us about the greatest love of all the God, the love that God has for his people. I also don't think it's a manual. I don't think it's a dating manual to tell you how to pick the right girl, how to court the right girl, how to marry the right girl, and how to have a good honeymoon with the girl. I don't think it's there for us to follow step-by-step instructions. I think it's a love story. It's a love story. And like every love story, it illustrates for us what true love is all about. And most importantly, it is a love story that you can be a part of. I don't know you. I don't know what God, what story God is writing for you romantically. Some of you are going to be married and it's going to be great. Some of you are going to be married and it's going to be awful. Some of you are going to be married and it's going to be awful, then it'll be great. Some of you are going to be single and it's going to be awful. Some of you are going to be single and it's going to be great. Ad infinitum. But I know this. No matter what you have done. No matter how much someone has hurt you. No matter how degraded you have been. No matter how much you have degraded others. You can be loved perfectly. Completely. Overwhelmingly. You can be swept off your feet. Because of how God loves you. Think about the uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. What does he say? He says, he's trying to explain the gospel. Remember, you know the story. He's trying to explain the gospel, and he says, I want you to remember how well your daddy loved your mommy. That's how Jesus loved the church. Right? No, the exact opposite. The exact opposite. He said, husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. This is the example of all loves. It is the perfect illustration, the perfect demonstration of what love is to look like. And that perfect love is available to us. No matter how much we've been injured or rebelled, our lover wants to come down and swoop out of his castle. And he wants to free us and save us from everything that threatens us and everything that enslaves us. And he wants to enjoy us. He wants to enjoy us. It's important that we don't read these words of Song of Solomon with a kind of idolatrous desire for a human marriage if you get married it will not be this way it won't be perfect you are going to really fail the person you love I mean, really fail I'm not I'm not just kind of up here doing the typical you're going to sin yeah you are big deal Um, no you're really going to fail there are going to be things that you should do that any decent husband would do that you will not do And your wife is going to be sorely, sorely and rightfully disappointed in you. And there are going to be things that any unbeliever knows they should not do. And you're going to do them. And your husband is going to be sorely disappointed with you. And hurt by you. And you will fail to find the kind of love that you long for at the core of your being if you only look to this human who shares a house with you. But if you receive, you'll believe that this love can be something richer and higher than anything you've ever hoped for before. Then The true love maker of love, the true type of love, the true example of love can fill you with so much love that it will overwhelm you and overflow and pour out around and onto the people around you. And you can find the love to forgive. And you can find the love to seek forgiveness. I want you to know, first and foremost, as we go to this text, that nobody will ever love you like Jesus. Nobody will ever love you like Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate, star-struck, heart-sick lover. Are you embarrassed to, to think that Christ might love you that much? Every line of this poem drips With the honey sweetness of how much Solomon loves this young maid. Every word is just sickening and how intoxicated he is with her. Do you really think the Son of God can learn a thing or two about love from Solomon? Of course he can. God is love. He is the source of love. He is the creator of love. And the absolute ultimate of human love can only compare to a faint shadow of how richly he loves us. That's why, that's why those who spent the most time in prayer and in scripture kept coming back to this book to see how Christ loved them. We look at how the Puritans read Song of Solomon and we think they were embarrassed. Guys, I'm embarrassed by books of the Bible. And you know what I do with them? I ignore them. That's what you do. If you're embarrassed by a book, you just, you don't preach on it all the time. You ignore it. The Puritans were not embarrassed by sex. They weren't. They understood how the plumbing worked. They got it. As a matter of fact, they were known, those who studied them have known, those who have studied them have shown us that they were known to discipline people, bring people before the session for not showing their spouse their due beneficence. They understood how it worked. They were not embarrassed by sex. They just weren't obsessed with it. They just didn't think that marital love was the highest joy you could achieve on this earth. And the more they prayed and the more they spent time in Scripture and the more they studied how God loved them, they came to find that this book reflected how they felt about Jesus more than any other. We're the ones who are embarrassed to think that God could love us this way. They weren't embarrassed. When Jonathan Edwards was writing what many consider to be his greatest work, a work on the perfections of Jesus, and he was looking for a title for this masterwork, he reached his hand in the Song of Solomon, and he pulled out this beautiful phrase, You are altogether lovely. Do you feel that way about Jesus? I want you to understand that Jesus loves you this way. He's not standing far off. He's not aloof with his arms folded. He's not thinking to himself, well, if you would just preach better, then I would like you. If you could just get enough people in your church, then maybe I would be smile upon you. He is heartsick. He is embarrassing. He is sloppy. He is seeking you out. He wants to be with you in the morning. He wants to be with you in the evening. He longs for you. He stands at this table and He begs you, come, take my body into your body. I'm here for you. He left heaven for you. He endured the cross and scorned its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. What was the joy? Being with you. Being with you is the joy. Are you embarrassed to think of God that way? When we read Psalm of Solomon, when we read this text, we see a couple that are so enamored with each other. They want to see each other. They want to feel each other. They want to hear each other. They want to smell each other. They want to taste each other. They they, speak in hyperbole. They say things that make no sense if you interpret it literally. They, they say things like, why weren't you my brother? And we go, that's gross. <laughs> why wasn't I there when your mother delivered you? Like, okay, you just jumped into a weird plane. But what are they saying? She's saying, why was there a second that I was on this earth that I did not know you? Why has there ever been a moment when I did not know you? Wants you that way, and God wants us that way. I had a friend who's a RUF campus minister named Ben Edman, and he has a PhD in uh, an Old Testament. And he said that the thing that surprises students of the Old Testament is how carnal the words are, that the graphic, the graphic language, the the unashamed passion that God demonstrates for His covenant people. And y'all know the examples. Y'all know this. You're all Old Testament scholars. But for the sake of the college students who have forgotten their Hebrew, I remind you. You'll, you see it in the, in the most simple um, euphemisms, right? Adam knew Eve, and what happened? She bore a son. Abraham knew Sarah, and she bore a son. David knew Bathsheba, and he bore a son. And then what did David write about God? You have searched me and known me. You know me when I get up. You know me when I lie down. Now, and we preach on that, and we go, Behold the omniscience of God. You can't teach God anything. You can't hide your sins from Him. And all of our people get scared. They want to run away. Or they get bored and they want to go to lunch. But not David. David understood what he was talking about. And he said, Behold, your knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. You want me! Search me and see if there's anything about me that grieves you. And cleanse me of it. Because I want you... To find me attractive. You want me. Why do I labor this? Because I want you to be overwhelmed. Shocked. And even scandalized. By how much the Lord of the universe wants you. He wants you. And you see that the most clearly when we read about the place that he brings his bride. That there's this phrase that comes up over and over again, this, this idea that comes up over and over again through the Song of Songs. I, he, she describes herself as a vineyard. She describes himself, she describes him as an apple tree. They're, they're together here at the, our last text under, under the fragrant cedar branches. Uh, they're outside, if you can't figure out the poetry. They're they're lying together on the green rugs. They're they're together on the grass, right? They're in the garden. He he looks at her and says, You are a garden locked away, my sister, my bride. And she looks at him and she says, Come blow upon my garden. And he says, I've come into your garden and I've eaten your choices' fruits. The idea of the garden is pretty strong in this text. Kind of makes you want to wipe your glasses. And if you're a Bible scholar, and clearly all of you are, then you know that phrase garden, it kind of stands out to you, doesn't it? Because as we learned in catechism class, why did God create the world? He wanted to give a bride to his son, and that bride needed a place to grow. And so he created man after his own image, just as he created Eve after the image of Adam, like her, a help meet for her. So he created man after his own image to have a proper bride for his son. And he put her where? In the garden. And in that garden was marked by a river flowing down the middle of it. I used to think I it as something in the backyard. Then I realized I didn't have a room in my backyard for a river that would spring out five branches. It was a big old place. And there, and through that on each side of that river was the tree of life. The tree of life and the river were there. And and we know, of course, Adam and Eve sinned, and, and God shut them out because He loved them. He shut them out of the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree in life tree of life and they wouldn't live forever in rebellion. And Jesus came and sought them. And that idea of a garden was always out in front of them. The land of Canaan flowed with milk and honey. And God is seeking after His bride and seeking after His adulterous bride. And finally, we read in Revelation 21 that He is together with His bride at the wedding feast. And where are they? They're in the new city. But if you read the definition of the new city, the description of the new city, what does it look like? It's got a river flowing right down the middle of the street. And on each side of this river is a tree of life. Finally, Jesus gets to be in the garden with His wife. But we know there's another garden. We know that at John chapter 17, he prays that prayer. He prays that prayer that's so important for the, for the whole picture of the Bible to come together. Where he says, finally, Father, the hour has come. Now let them be one. And we hear him praying about our oneness. And we, we talk about the unity of Christ, the unity of the church. And that's important. But it wasn't the end. What did he say? Let them be one, just as we are one, so they can be in us. And we can be in them. And we can all be one. He's longing for his honeymoon. And when he finished praying that prayer, John tells us he went out to the garden. And in that garden, God showed him. If you want her, you have to pay for her. You're going to have to become sin for her. You're going to have to pay the price of sin for her. You're going to have to be, if you want to live forever with her, then you're going to have to die for her. And Jesus cried out, no. No. Not that. Anything but that. And God said, if you want her, that's the price. And so in the garden he was betrayed. And in the garden he gave himself up to be arrested. Why? So he could bring us into his garden. So that we could become his garden. So that he could be a garden for us. So that we could feast on his love. In that garden Jesus begged his father for his bride. In that garden Jesus paid the price for his bride. To bring us into him. Can you believe. The Lord of the universe loves you that much. Will you receive it? Will you let that love melt your heart? In my family, there's a large disagreement about which television we should watch. Bianca thinks we should watch Victorian movies. And I think we should watch movies with a lot of killings. And so we compromise on uh, romantic movies, romantic comedies, because they're at least funny and they're short. <laughs> and one thing I've noticed is that every romantic comedy shares this one, one characteristic. Actually, every great romantic story shares this characteristic. There's always a point at which the male, usually, almost always the male, one character or another, but usually almost, almost always the male, utterly humiliates himself. For the girl he is seeking. I mean, think about it. And in, in pride and prejudice the best of them all, right? What does Mr. Darcy do? He goes and stands up for his enemy. And he pays all of his enemy's debts to save his, his girl's good name. He humiliates himself for her. Swallows all of his pride. What does John Cusack do and say anything? He holds the radio over his head so everybody can see him. And he plays Peter Gabriel in your eyes until she comes out. I I could go on. What is... uh... No, it's not. And if the movie has a happy ending and ends with a wedding, like every good story should, like the Bible does, then her heart melts and she comes to him. But if the movie is cynical, then you have Forrest Gump over and over again, where Jenny just looks at Forrest and says, you don't get it. And it's until she dies that she never really believes he loves her. What will you do when we come to this table? Are you going to come down here thinking, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, but everybody else is going, and I don't want anybody to ask me why I'm not going, so I'm going to go and fake it. Or are you going to be absolutely scandalized that the Lord of the universe wants you to come feast on his body? Will you come into his gardens? Will you eat his choicest fruits? Will you be scandalized that God loves you that much? Please pray with me. Oh, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Lord, I know it. I know it. I preached the sermon three times. I don't believe it. Overwhelm me with your love, I pray. Just pour it out all over us. Convince us that you love us. We
1: pray in Jesus'
0: name.